All right, so I just want to kind of tie up uh, the very end of John chapter 4, and we are only going to spend a second or two here. Uh, I thought Brian did a good job of talking about the woman at the well and some of the issues that were going on there. There's a lot of things that could be said that we did not say, but when you get to the latter part of John, we see here where John uh, records this, what you could call a better reception for Jesus uh, in another part of Galilee. And so we've seen different scene changes here in the course of, of the study. Uh, furthermore, uh, he mentions that his teachings at the Passover was still fresh in their minds. And then we find very late in John chapter 4, verses 46 through about the, well, through the end of the chapter, where Jesus performs this miracle uh, and uh, does great wonders as he's been doing throughout this particular time in this place. Anything else on John chapter 4? We covered John chapter 4 in probably about 15 minutes last week and this week as well. But I want to go ahead and move on to our brand new material. But I just want to kind of highlight the last few things that Brian had. All right. Let's go ahead, if you would, turn over to Mark chapter 1. And uh, the next section appears in Mark 1 as well as Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Obviously, we're talking about the harmony of the Gospels, how they blend so well together, how there are never contradictions, but yet there are amplifications where Matthew may record something that Mark only spends a moment or two talking about. I want to use Mark as kind of our home base for the majority of our class together today. If you want to bring in comments from Matthew or Luke, you're welcome to do so. But I want to start in Mark 1, and uh, down at about verse 14 is where we're going to pick up here. It says, After John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we know that generally speaking, when we see references to the kingdom of God, uh, it's typically Matthew that records that kind of a phrase. We know that Matthew is very concerned about the kingdom, very, not that Mark, Luke, and John were not, but that Matthew had this idea with a very probably, as Brian pointed out four weeks ago, with this Jewish audience in mind that would have appreciated that. And so a couple of different things here. One is John has given us greater detail of the early days of Jesus' ministry in Judea, first parts of the Galilean ministry, and now the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, pick up with his preaching of repentance in Capernaum. Uh, he calls four men to be disciples. How would you classify? Just, you know, just, we, we have a microphone for those of you that want to make lengthier comments, uh, but shorter comments, just shout them out. Uh, how would you classify his earliest followers in, in, with an adjective or two? Or maybe a different way of asking it is, what were they not? Yeah, common. Uh, they aren't the educated elite at the top. Uh, they're not the noble men of a, uh, of a sophisticated uh, profession making lots of money. And so that's the case here in verse 16 where he begins to call four fishermen to be his disciples. Uh, Jesus, if you go down to verses 21 through 28, in my Bible it has a little subheading, casting out unclean spirit, uh, 
Jesus demonstrates that he has power over unclean spirits and can cast them out. I want to particularly look at verse 23, where it says, There was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I've always thought that was kind of just a neat transition where you have this unclean spirit crying out, recognizing who Jesus was, recognizing him as the Son of God. Uh, And then verse 28, uh, Mark kind of provides a little bit of commentary to what's going on in the popularity of Jesus or his fame. That's the word that is used in the New King James Version where it says, immediately his fame spread throughout all the region and around Galilee. Uh, In the next couple verses, who does Jesus heal? Heals the mother-in-law of Peter, uh, heals many, but in addition to that, highlighted is Peter's mother-in-law continues casting out demons, doing many wondrous works. So, and Mark's style, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, is kind of bang-bang. Just here's the, here's the story, here's the highlights, we're moving on to the next thing. Here's the story, here's the highlights, moving on to the next thing. So there's a lot of different things that he's, where he talks in plurality, casting out demons, performing miracles, doing wonders, and he doesn't record all the details of all those particular uh, uh, things. And the last thing here in verses, uh, through the, about verse 39, uh, Jesus, we know, that has a great following. If you compare Matthew 4, 25, happy to share with you my PowerPoint slides because I know we're going quickly today, uh, to the point that people are seeking him out, uses his popularity, uses his fame to spread the message of the gospel to surrounding towns. I think there's a good application there for us in that if we had fame, most of us don't, If we were famous, if we had a lot of popularity in the world, there are a lot of things that we could do with that. Make money, make friends, uh, do all kinds of great things, at least in the worldly standards. But the greatest thing that we can ever do with our fame is spread the gospel message. That's the greatest thing that we can ever do with our reputations. Anything else on the first 39 verses? Uh, Someone else said they're wearing their running shoes today because we're going to be going so fast. So. All right, let's go ahead and proceed verses 40 through the end of the chapter. Um, Let's read verse 40. A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So much we could say about the way that he phrased that. Jesus moved with compassion. Uh, So you have a humble, uh, let me go over here to this slide here. Make sure I got the right. Yeah, a humble, what you would call desperate leper. And we're familiar with leprosy and not only how it was debilitating physically, but how mentally and socially it was such a catastrophic uh, sickness or disease to have. Comes to the Savior for help. He worships Jesus according to Matthew chapter 8, verse 2. There's a phrase that is used by Matthew that is not used by Mark. And then it says, Jesus was moved with what? Compassion. And I've always thought this was really interesting, especially when you're looking at Matthew roughly uh, 8 and 9, how many times the word compassion is used in relation to Jesus, where it says Jesus was moved with compassion. I had never counted that before, but I went back and counted it just for the fun of it. And seven times 
Jesus was moved with compassion, at least in the New King James Version, um, which I don't know if that's purposeful. Uh, I don't know if that's just coincidental, but Jesus's compassion is certainly complete when it came to the earliest followers of him and when it comes to us as well. Uh, Jesus gave instructions to the man, and it involved two things. You, you may say, well, there's actually three things, but there's two big things that he tells this healed man to do. What does he tell him to do without reading it together? But what do we know he tells him to do? One is what? I'm sorry? Say nothing. Okay, say nothing. And then what was the other thing? Show yourself to the priest. And so I put them in opposite order here. The first thing is a fulfillment of the law, going back to Leviticus chapter 14, uh, when it came to going to the priest and saying, look, I'm clean. I'm now ready to re-enter back into society, ready to go back into my community because I'm no longer a danger to them. And then the second thing is what uh, our brother Nate said, a desire to avoid swarms of miracle seekers. It seems to me that's what Jesus is trying to avoid. Remember, Jesus is here for a spiritual purpose. He's here to on this earth for a brief period of time to provide instruction. And the more and more people that hear about his fame and his miracles and his miraculous abilities in general, the more likely it is he's going to be crowded by them. We've already seen that in the course of our study together today. The other thing is Luke chapter 5 verse 13 makes an interesting uh, little observation. But consider how Jesus would have put himself at risk in touching the man. Uh, this is a dangerous thing to do physically, socially, economically, mentally, because it's going to put him in danger of leprosy as well. Anything else on Mark 1? I definitely want to take comments. Uh, so even though we're going fast, doesn't mean that your comments are not valuable. All right. Let's go ahead and proceed to Mark chapter 2, if you would. And we are going to cover most of Mark chapter 2 today, if not all of it. Uh, we'll cover most of it, looks like. I'm looking at my notes as to what I wanted to cover. But let's go over to Mark chapter 2. And I want to really focus in on the first uh, couple dozen verses here. Um, this is where Jesus heals a man and forgives a man who had been paralyzed. And, uh, you know, we've heard sermons on this before. I've got a sermon or two on this particular text. It's just ripe with applications and teachings. And we'll get into a couple of those things. But this is where Jesus heals and forgives a paralyzed man. Uh, where does this scene pick up? And you're welcome to cheat by looking in chapter 2. goes back to Capernaum. So we have a kind of a scene change here, a return back to Capernaum um, on this particular occasion. And what do the friends of the paralyzed man do, just in a, in a phrase or two? They let him down through the roof because there's so many people crammed into this little house or this little building that they have to let him down through the, the, the roof and they have to break open the tiles or open the tiles depending on how the house was constructed in order to get him down. So one of the things that is just ripe for application is that the friends put forth an awful lot of effort in order to get this man close to Jesus because they are desperate to get him healed. But of course, Jesus says, what am I more concerned about? And that is Jesus's first thought 
or first action was to address the man's spiritual health before his physical health. This, to me, is a model for how we interact with people and collectively as a church, how we interact with people. The point that I'm making is this. We have people who will frequently come to us as a church organization and they'll be seeking physical help. And we explain to them, and we being, it could be you in a private conversation, it could be our elders, it could be David, it could be me, it could be any of us, saying, you know, our primary focus here is spiritual. That's what we are really concerned about is the spiritual things. And that's what Jesus does here on this particular occasion. But, of course, he does heal the man. Uh, and what ends up happening is because of the actions of Jesus, God received the glory and all the witnesses were amazed. Let's go down to verse 13. Who does Jesus call to be his disciple now? He's already called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, but now he's going to call who? Levi or Matthew, right? Depending on uh, what you're reading from. But Jesus now calls Matthew to be one of his disciples, to be one of his apostles. What was Jesus doing on this particular occasion? He was teaching. Without, any, without a doubt, the model for Jesus' behavior is when he goes from one place to another place, he's continuing to teach the people. Reminds me an awful lot of Acts, where Paul goes from one city to the next city to the next city, and every time he finds himself, or well, he puts himself in the synagogue so that he can be teaching people, finding people to uh, interact with on a spiritual basis. So Jesus is continuing to teach the people. Uh, and he continues what Brian talked about last week and the week before with what we could call a very simple invitation, but this time to a publican. What is a publican? tax collector what do we know about them culturally in the in the first century i'm sorry hated by the jews i put up three things uh three reasons why they were despised number one they're despised for their collaboration with rome they are despised for their unfair collection schemes which we talked about that uh in a few weeks ago and then despised for their interaction with non-Jewish people. So it's like, it's like three strikes and you're out. And so these people are despised by the everyday Jew. And Jesus chooses to go and interact with one of these despised individuals and puts himself at risk again. This time not necessarily maybe at physical risk, although I suppose there could have been some physical harm, but more of just... Uh, who he chooses to collaborate with, who he chooses to, to be with. And how does Matthew respond to this invitation? He follows. And I never really thought about this until I was thinking about it uh, Monday or Tuesday of this week. Um, and that is Matthew's response shows faith. We know that. But it also, what's he never going to do again He's never, they're never going to take him back to his job. And I'd never really thought about that before. So, and he's going to have trouble finding a job. Put on your resume. Well, well, give me your past experience and give me some references. Well, <laughs> that's not going to work very well when you're trying to 
get a job in a Jewish community when that's on your resume. Anything else on uh, the first 17 verses of chapter 2? I uh, thought I saw a hand. Maybe not. Okay. All right. Let's go ahead. And what does Jesus then do uh, when it comes to Matthew and the other tax collectors? He says, I'll have nothing to do with you. No, he's, he engages them, right? And on this particular occasion, we see where uh, he eats with Matthew and the other publicans. Why is this a problem? Uh, why is this a perceived problem, I should say? Right. Knowing whoever your company is is how you're known by. And the eating with sinners. So it's one thing to eat with the publicans. Now you're eating with others who are involved in known sinful behaviors. Uh, and notice, if you would... Jesus' word choice in chapter 2, verse, I want to read chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. When the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So, he uses uh, particular words here. He uses the word righteous to indicate the self-righteous attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees, which I thought that was kind of interesting. He's, he's really being very pointed. Uh, there comes a time for us, and this is sometimes difficult for us to do, to be pointed in our teaching and to say, that's not right, that's not correct. And Jesus is being very pointed here when he says, he didn't come to call the righteous, even though you all think you're righteous, talking to the Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious leaders of the first century. But rather, he came to call the sick. And then the other thing that I thought, the other two points on this particular text before we get into verses 18 and following, is uh, the Pharisees speak directly to the disciples of Jesus, not to Jesus himself. I thought that was interesting. Sometimes... Rather than going to the source of our problem or the person with whom we have the issue, we'll talk to everyone else but that person. And that's exactly what seems to be happening here. And then the last thing here is that Jesus himself answers, likens himself to the doctor who must interact with patients in order to heal them. Um, you know, we've... Uh, Tim talked about it last night. We've talked about it over the last few months. We've come through uh, a challenging 18 months or however long it's been. Uh, and one of the things about it is you, when you go to see your doctor, you have to answer all those questions online or on a form. Have you been sick or whatever? And you kind of want to sometimes say, well, of course I'm sick. That's why I'm coming to see you, right? <laughs> but, you know, Jesus here is interacting with people that are sick because he has compassion on them, as mentioned on those seven occasions that we talked about. All right, anything uh, thus far that you wanted to mention? And I'm looking at our time. See, how we're doing fine on time. All right, let's go ahead and go to verse 18. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples 
do not fast. There's a lot about fasting in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 6 is a classic text that deals with the subject of fasting. Uh, and certainly that's a study in and of itself. Um, what do we know about the Pharisees and fasting? And this may be one of those guess what Leland is thinking things. What do we know about Pharisees and fasting? Yes, they did it. They did it diligently. If you want to give them credit for something, they, they did it diligently. But like Nate said, they did it for a public show. So the Pharisees were well known for what I, I put in quotes, diligent fasting. Matthew chapter 6 is where it says they disfigured their faces to make it look like, uh, oh, look how sick I am. I haven't eaten in days or whatever the case may be. I want people to notice, uh, like Nate said, uh, that I am religious. Luke 18, what does Luke 18, 12 say? Anybody remember? I probably wouldn't have known without looking it up. But this is where uh, the two men are praying. And the one says, I give of my tithes and I fast twice a week. This is the Pharisee who's praising himself and praying to God. And so they are well known for their fasting behavior, uh, well known for their diligent fasting. So Jesus comes to them and and they ask him this question. And Jesus answers the question arguing that a time is going to come when sadness over his departure would come with fasting. So turn over to John chapter 16. I know we're getting way ahead of John chapter 4 and 5, which is our text today. But I, 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 I thought about this particular text. Um, John 16, verses 5 and 6. This is the section where Jesus is uh, preparing to leave and he's giving some of his final instructions. He says, Now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And so, uh, and it seems as if there would be some fasting associated with that along with other times. And there's, again, there's more to be said about fasting. But let me just say this. I, uh, I came across this quote this week, which I thought, well, that's a really neat quote. Simple, uh, but I thought was profound. And that is that fasting for the sake of fasting is worthless. I didn't, I didn't make that up. Someone said, and you, can, you could argue, you know, maybe get into the nuances of that statement. But we all agree that fasting, like Nate said, so that people can see that I'm fasting and look how religious I am, look how, how religiously minded I am, is not useful. It doesn't achieve the purpose that it is for. Um, all right, anything else on... Mark chapter 1 or chapter 2. We are doing actually very well on time, so we have time for comments if you have them. People who who typically fast are often in mourning. They're so upset about what has happened, such as, well... Jesus is cruci- witnessing Jesus being crucified would be a reason to fast. Yep. Um, uh, and they're so upset or they're so in grief um, because they lost their spouse or, or somebody that right. they truly, truly love. That's usually when people fast. They right. don't attend to, but they just don't want food. They don't want food at that point. That's a good point, as, as Miss Leanne points out. Um, well, we've got a couple of things. While we're on that subject, if we were to develop a study of fasting, if we were to say, okay, let's, let's write a sermon or two on fasting, or uh, let's study that for a couple of weeks, 
What other occasions might a person choose to fast? We, sympathy or, or going through a period of time of great grief where you don't feel like eating. Why might you voluntarily say, you know what, I, I'm not going to eat for X hours or for besides physical means, for spiritual means, I mean. Important decision you might want to make. Very good, very good. And I'm glad Nate brought that up. So sometimes um, you have important, big decisions to make. When you take out fasting, or when you when you insert fasting, you're taking out eating, which means you're taking out time to go get food or prepare food or whatever the case may be. What is intended? It seems based on Matthew six and some other passages to be inserted in that spot. Yeah, a focus on God, prayer, meditation, study of his word. So if you're going to say, well, uh, rather than spending um, the hour that I would normally spend on getting food prepared or getting it from the store or whatever, I'm going to spend that extra hour really focused in on, on prayer, really focused in on devotion to scripture and studying from God's word to uh, at, um, on my own. I know of a church that years ago, this has probably been 20 years ago, that, uh, and you got to be careful with this because you don't want to, again, make it public in the sense that look at me, but individuals were invited if they wanted to fast and, and use that time for prayer and diligent study before making a very big decision as a congregation. I forget what the issue was that was going on, but you know that was something that they chose to do. Anything else on either fasting or publicans uh, or eating with sinners or anything along that line that you wanted to bring up before we transition? All right, we're going to go to John chapter 5 because that's my assignment, and I, I actually like the way that Brian has kind of outlined it. So uh, we're looking at the harmony of the Gospels. We're trying to somewhat replicate the order in which these things occurred. And we'll come back to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Lord willing, next week uh, and the weeks to come. But I want us to go and look at John chapter 5. And I want us to break it into sections of three. Sections of three. Now, we could spend all of our time on John chapter 5, and to try to do that in 15 minutes, one might say, is, is ambitious, but we're going to do our very best to cover it. Um, the first dozen verses is about a man who was sick. How long had he been sick? <clears throat> 38 years. And he was at this pool where in my mind there's these colonnades and like benches surrounding it. And, and those of you that are s- scholars of uh, New Testament geography and edifices might know better. But the idea that there's this pool where he gets access to in order to be healed, but because there are so many other individuals who are in need of physical healing, by the time the waters are stirred up, he can't get into it in order to get the healing that he wants. And he actually says, no one is there to help me to get in. So let's read a couple of verses. We're not going to read all 15 verses, but let's read a couple of verses here uh, in verse uh, 5. 
A certain man was there, the infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want, me to, do you want to be made well? Which is an interesting question. Uh, and there's a lot to be said about that. Do you want to be made well? And I can almost, if, I, if that's me <laughs> being the one, the recipient of that question, I'm like, well, well, of course I want to be made well. Yes, I do. Sick man said, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus does not say, let me help you into the water, right? Jesus does not say, all right, next time the water is stirred up, I'll be there to, I'll pick you up and throw you in. Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately, that word immediately is used uh, a number of times uh, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in reference to miracles. The man was made well, took up his bed, walked. That day was the Sabbath. And as a side note, we know that by this time, I, I read this week and I should have written it down, how many hundreds, if not thousands of particular Jewish regulations had been written down that you could not do and as a long list of things, including take up your bed. You can't pick up your bed on the Sabbath day. Uh, and, and carry it, uh, according to Jewish tradition. Uh, and in fact, verse 10, the Jews cried out, and they said, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. He who made me well said, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is the man? Take up your bed and walk. But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And, of course, the man departed, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So let's talk about this for just a, a couple of moments here. Uh, we have a scene change here uh, in John chapter 5 where it says Jesus went up to Jerusalem uh, after, uh, with a feast. There's, um, I think Brian talked about uh, rabbit holes that you can go down. I only went down a few with this as to which feast it was because <laughs> it's like you there's so much debate as to what it was, but it was a feast. That's what I know. Um, so we'll just leave it there for now. Uh, note, if you would, verse 6, how simple Jesus was and how this, to me, models our behavior in trying to teach people today. We don't have to be uh, very sophisticated. Uh, do you want to be made well? Uh, we could ask someone... Uh, do you want to go to heaven? Uh, or, as I heard someone say elegantly just a week or so ago, making a comment to someone about how God has been great to me today and use it as a way to enter uh, conversation, icebreakers with people that you're talking to, your friends, your coworkers, or whatever the case may be, in trying to engage them in spiritual conversations. Uh, but just notice the simplicity of Jesus in saying, do you want to be made well? thought it was interesting that you get down to verse 13. Verse 15, he says it was Jesus. Verse 13, remember, he didn't know who the man was. So the healed man was unsure of his healer. There's something you could say about that, probably. Um, and then verse 14, if you look at it literally, the way that it is structured is that you have this controversy about the healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus commands the man 
do not keep on sinning. What do we know about that? And, and again, this, this is more of just a speculative question. Because I, I thought it was interesting where in verse 14 says, sin no, New King James, sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. What does that mean? And, I, and I'm asking that question partly because I want to just see what your thoughts are. But also I'm curious as to what your thoughts are. Okay, absolutely. One of the things would be what's worse than being paralyzed or, not, or having a physical disability or not being healed is, is hell. That's far worse than anything. Remember, Jesus actually says, fear not the one who can destroy your body, but destroy both your body and soul in hell. That's, that's where the real uh, emphasis should be. Absolutely. Sure. Are there physical consequences to choices that we make to sin today? Sure. Sometimes it's financial. Sometimes it's physical health. Sometimes it's, it could be losing your freedoms. It could be uh, a number of things that happen because we do wrong because we sin against our God or we, and, and sin against someone else as well. Uh, other thoughts on the first 15 verses uh, that you wanted to bring? I know we went through it kind of quickly there. man come in and to simply speak and tell a guy to take up his bed and, and walk right. was something they hadn't seen. I mean, you know, they, they no doubt have heard of Jesus, but this wasn't a regular occurrence like right. the pool was. Right. So for Jesus to come along and to do this spectacular thing would have been, well, spectacular at its very nature, right? Um, and just as a side note, those of you reading from the ESV uh, have a slightly different version, right? In verses 3 and 4. We didn't read verses 3 and 4, but your, your verses 3 and 4 don't come into our, the New King James or the King James or the New American Standard in the same way. In that where you have three, says in my version it says, A great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water... For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. So just because you don't have that doesn't mean it's a cause for alarm. Uh, that's another rabbit hole you can go down if you want, which I chose not to this week. I'd gone down it years ago. All right. Yes, Brother David. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm struck by the similarity that every one of us is in a helpless state. We're in such a state that we are helpless to help ourselves, to save ourselves. And so we must all answer that same question that Jesus asked. You know, do you want to be made well? Absolutely. That's excellent. Great application to, to that. And, that. and that's true. I mean, this is, this is obviously in the text, not just to show the power of Jesus. I mean, that's a spectacular thing that we see is the power of Jesus. But more importantly, like Nate said, is the power of Jesus to help us with, as we started today, with the spiritual things that matter more than the physical. Um, recently illustrated it this way, that if, if I've got two chairs and in one chair is a Christian who's dying of cancer and needs to get to the hospital 
And in the other chair, and a faithful Christian, by all, by all accounts, what we know, a faithful child of God, and dying of cancer, needs to get to the hospital for treatment. And then in the other chair, I've got a sinner who is not a Christian, whom I'm more concerned about. Of course, I'm more concerned about the latter than I am the, the former. And that's not because I'm cold and I don't care about the previous person, but I want to address that spiritual concern that that person has because that person needs to needs Jesus, like David said. So a really good point that David makes there. All right, let's go ahead and transition to verses 16. Uh, I think the next section I divided it down to around verse 23, 16 through 23 of the text. Um, what happens in verse 16? There's something that's it's the... Um, it's the first time it has, re, has, has transpired in the Gospel of John, in verse 16. First view of any sort of threat or persecution or anything related in a negative way towards Jesus. Now, we know that people are not real fond of Jesus as, as, as 4 and 5 develop. But as you get into the middle part of chapter 5, now you have these open threats against Jesus. So this is the... The first threat to Jesus in a public way. Uh, you see it in verse 16 and then in verse 18 where it says the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he only spoke, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also he made, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. Um, Let's talk for just a few moments about this notion of equality with God. Because if you read verses 18 through about verse 23, 23 says, All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Well, those are fighting words. Those are the, if you're looking to win friends and influence people in the first century Jewish community, you don't make those kinds of statements. But Jesus made those kinds of statements because he wasn't concerned about friends and influence. He was concerned about teaching the truth and getting to the heart of the gospel message. This notion of equality with God is central to New Testament Christianity. There's a number of passages that really are, would be important to, to detail in a study on this subject. I just brought up two. One is John chapter 10, so just four or five pages over in your Bibles. In John chapter 10, verse 30, this is where Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. And then in verse 30, he says, I and my Father are one. Well, there's another statement that's going to really get people riled up and make them not happy with you, right? I and my Father are one. And the other passage that just kind of spoke to me, just because we, we recently studied it, was, we won't read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, but that's where Jesus, I'm sorry, where, where Paul, in talking about Jesus, said he did not consider it what to be equal with God. Remember, remember the word? Robbery, or being a thief to be uh, equal with God. Absolutely. Uh, and he made himself a bondservant and came in the likeness of men and did all those great things that we otherwise can appreciate and know. While we're in this particular section, verse 22 says, The Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. 
judgment belongs to Jesus, which is important to note, and that would have been another concept. So if, you, if you're an average Jew or an average Jewish leader at this particular point, you hear one thing that Jesus says, I can't believe he said that. Then he says something else. I can't believe he said that too. And now he says this in verse 22 where he says, the father judges no one but has committed all judgment to me, the son. Well, there's another thing that's offensive to me. So you are really bothered by the things that Jesus is saying. All right, let's go ahead and conclude and I'll allow Brian to kind of finish up chapter five. But I'll go ahead and take a stab at in four minutes at these last few verses. Um, I've got a sermon or two just on these verses, as I'm sure most preachers do. Um, But let's just make a couple of observations just as we kind of overview this, and I'll allow Brian to come back and make some observations. Um, Most assuredly, most assuredly, or verily, verily, 25 times in the book of John. What does it mean, verily, verily? And don't say most assuredly. Truly, truly. It's the idea of getting your attention. So I just saying this is, and it's, it's mentioned, it, it's a duplicate. It's the idea of this is true. No, no, I mean, listen, listen. This is true. This is big what's about to happen. That's also similar to the word behold. Something big is about to happen in the New Testament. Behold, something big is about to happen. So Jesus doesn't seek to downplay the fact that he is God or equal with God, as we talked about in the previous three or four verses, uh, but continues that theme. I want to go down to verse 28. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, and then there are what you could call two resurrections, or maybe it's part A, part B, depending on how you want to look at it. What are the two resurrections outlined in verse 29, or the part A, part B? One is a resurrection where or to what? One is a resurrection of life. It's a beautiful scene. The other is a resurrection of death or of condemnation as as it is here in verse 29 in the New King James Version. Verse 30, then he concludes this little paragraph here as we have outlined it. I can myself do nothing. Of myself, do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Then, Jesus seeks to confront the Jews about his authority and his place of being equal to God. And that's verses 31 through 47. So here's a real brief outline of verses 31 through 37. There seems to be this is uh, a series of witnesses or testimonies or proofs that Jesus is really who he is. And the first of those is John the baptizer. We talked a lot about John the Baptist over the last two weeks, and rightly so. So we're familiar with this now. Hopefully now it's making sense why we're doing the harmony of the gospels the way we're doing it. Because, okay, we talked about John the Baptist. We've got him him down and understand him, how important he is, but he's not as important as Jesus. I must decrease so that he must increase kind of, kind of thing. But John the Baptist has borne witness to the truth. And if you go back and read John 1, 15, 19, 32, you see where that's exactly happening. That's exactly what was transpiring there. There is a greater witness than John the Baptist as outlined in the next couple of verses. What is that witness? 
His works. What kind of works? What, name some of those works. <coughs> Casting out demons. Healing Peter's mother-in-law. Uh, doing all these wonderful things that we just read about earlier in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. As well as Mark 1 uh, and Mark 2. Uh, and then verse, drop down to verse 37. The Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. And then a final testimony, depending on how you outline it here, uh, not as you see it here, is verses 38 and 39. But you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you did not believe. You search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. Now what scriptures is he talking about here? Yeah, he's talking about the prophets, the Old Testament. The, that's what we refer to as scriptures when we're talking in New Testament terms. So I'll let Brian kind of finish up there. We've got 30 seconds left. If anybody has a final comment, otherwise you're, you get a bonus 30 seconds. Okay. All right. Thank you all very much. And tell Brian what a wonderful job I did in covering all of this. Thank you all for your, for your help today.